Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining with us for this week's teaching. As we begin, I just want to take a moment to let you know a few ways that you can connect with our community beyond this podcast. So first of all, as always, I want to invite you to visit southviewchurch.com viewpoint. There you'll find a collection of different resources and upcoming events and ministries to help draw us into the life of our community, both on-site and online. Towards that end, if you are new to our digital space, we would love to connect with you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of the viewpoint, along with a prayer request form, so that we can support and join you in prayer. Additionally, you can find us on Instagram and YouTube, where we share additional fragments from our weekly teachings, art from our community, midweek prayers, community updates, stuff like that. And I know that's a lot of different options. Bottom line is we just want to use the tools at our fingertips to create connections with one another, regardless of where we are gathered. And above all, may your hearts be open and expectant, because wherever you are and however you are listening, God is here, and Jesus invites you to bring all you are and all you are currently carrying into his presence. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. And as we come to today's teaching, normally through the season of ordinary time, we look to the Psalms as our call to worship. But occasionally, we will zag and instead, as an affirmation of our common faith, recite the Apostles' Creed together. And as you hear these words, remember that for all of our differences, this affirmation has served as common ground for the historical and global church for over 1,500 years. Friends, we are part of something so much bigger than just ourselves. We are a part of Christ and the story of renewal and restoration that he is writing. And so, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Hello everyone, it is good to be with you again wherever you're watching this. Over the last few weeks we've been in a series entitled Seeing Jesus. This series is a good reminder that while we often read the stories of the Old Testament thinking maybe that they're primarily morality focused or moral parables, like the story of Joseph and his brothers teaching us to get along with our siblings or the story of Ruth telling us to be helpful to others, The reality is that the primary purpose of these stories is not to improve our morals, but instead to reveal the living God to us, to reveal to us Jesus. As Jesus said in Luke 24, 44, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
After all, we're not like the Gnostic heretic Marcion, who actually tossed out the entire Old Testament, considering it irrelevant, and he tossed out some of the new as well. But there are those now that do the same in practice, feeling like the Old Testament is irrelevant for us today. However, we believe that the Old Testament is valid, important, and relevant in its ability to tell us more about God. And so the canon of Scripture starts at the beginning with Genesis. One of the key things to notice throughout the Old Testament, we're given a clear picture of the contrast between humanity's kingdom ideas and God's kingdom. As Arlene said last week, The conflict behind most of the conflicts in the Old Testament is stated in the temptation of Adam and Eve at the beginning in Genesis 3-5, where it says, Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And so having fallen to that temptation, we see God's plan throughout Scripture to bring us back to him and his garden through redemption in Christ and restoration through his resurrection. And so in our text today, Nebuchadnezzar is struggling with the same conflict, his own humanistic goal of being like God. It probably goes without saying that this human problem didn't disappear with Nebuchadnezzar or even with the end of the Old Testament, even the incarnation. We all still deal with the issue of trying to control the narrative of our own lives by ourselves rather than submitting to God's narrative and plan. And so today we're specifically going to be looking at Daniel 3, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so let's read our text together, starting in verse 14, and remembering that this is the word of God. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands?" Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace." Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, 
The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray that you would open our minds to the truth of your word by means of the Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to see Jesus. Open our hearts to love him more and more. Open our will to do only that which is righteous in your sight, so that your name may be glorified. Keep us, I pray, from presumptuous thoughts of our own importance and give us more understanding and illumination of Jesus. Enable us to hear your still, small voice speaking in our hearts and open our eyes to see Jesus in every page of your word. Open the eyes of our hearts, Father, and show us more of Jesus, I pray. In his name, amen. So before we jump into the text for today, it's helpful to look at what exactly is going on in the book of Daniel and what's happening in and around this story. So first of all, Israel has fallen and the temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed. The people of Israel are in exile and living under the reign of the Babylonians and the temple being destroyed was really a sign to everyone that Babylon's gods were more powerful. So gone was the idea of one God, such as Yahweh. And so from the viewpoint of a human observer in the time and in the readers later on, it seemed that the religion of the Hebrews had been completely discredited. Babylon felt that they were superior in every way. Because of this, the book of Daniel has a series of stories where Yahweh shows that this is not the case, and it's not unlike the days of Moses where he showed his power through the ten plagues. He is still going to carry out his covenant promise 
And therefore, the whole narrative in Daniel relates a series of contests between the false gods of human invention and the one true sovereign Lord and creator of heaven and earth. And an interesting note about the book of Daniel is that it's actually split into two languages in its original form. So chapters 1 and 8 through 12 are written in Hebrew, whereas chapters 2 through 7, where we find our text today, are written in Aramaic. This helps a little bit to date when the text may have been written, but really, there's a simple explanation for this as well. The Aramaic chapters would have likely been made available to the Gentiles, whereas the Hebrew chapters largely deal with specific Jewish concerns and God's special plans for the future of his covenant people. But I could put it another way. We have Daniel 1 as an introduction, and that's in Hebrew. Then we have the Aramaic chapters 2 through 7, which are self-contained. And then the implications of those chapters for Israel that are drawn out in chapters 8 through 12. And on top of that, chapters 2 through 7 relate to one another thematically in a really unique way. So Daniel 2 relates to Daniel 7. 3 relates to 6. Chapters 4 relates to 5. And they're all on themes of authority and deliverance. So in Daniel 1, having taken Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar asks Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring along some of the people of Israel back to the land of Shinar. And we're going to come back to that. But included in this group are four men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And this group was, it says in verse 5, assigned a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And on top of that, these three men had their names changed. So Daniel's name was changed to Belshazzar. Hananiah was changed to Shadrach. Mishael was changed to Meshach. And Azariah was changed to Abednego. So in this, we have our first test of these four And our first instance of Yahweh showing himself to be in control of the situation despite how the circumstances appear. And this alone has been a common theme traveling through this series with Esther and Joseph, Abraham, all being faced with circumstances that seem to say one thing, but Yahweh showing that he is actually in control of the narrative. Daniel and his friends in their first test are committed to steering clear of the food that's been assigned to them because it would have been considered unclean. And it says Daniel was given favor by God with his superior, Ashpenaz, and they settled on seeing how 10 days would go if they just ate vegetables and water instead. And at the end of 10 days, Daniel 1.15 says that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food, which I think is ridiculous. But it's a miracle. Miracles can be a bit ridiculous. Extraordinary. So for the course of these three years of training, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrived in every way. And finally, when they meet the king after their time of training and education was done, Nebuchadnezzar says that they are ten times better than everyone else. 
And so it appears as though right off the bat, the young Yahweh worshipers were faced with a clear-cut issue of both obedience and faith. And it's significant that precisely in the matter of forbidden fruit, forbidden food, in which Satan successfully tripped up Adam and Eve, these four Hebrew youths passed their first test with flying colors. And it really gives us a picture of the type of commitment that these four men have to Yahweh and his commands. And it gives us an idea of how they're going to handle pressures that come to them in the days or years to come. So if we jump ahead to Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar has erected a golden statue that's over 90 feet tall. And he's called all the important people, the politicians, his military officials, his counselors, he's called them all to the plains of Dura, where it was built, and commanded them to bow down and worship when they hear the music play. And this golden statue may have been of him, of his likeness, or it could have been a statue of his god, Nebu. But regardless, Nebuchadnezzar is attempting to unite his world around his rule and tying it to worship, which makes him the most powerful and superior. And this might sound familiar to us, And if it does, it's because it's largely the same issue and even uses the same term, land of Shinar, in this other story. And that story is the Tower of Babel from Genesis 11. Genesis 11, too, says, And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Theologian William Dumbrell says in this verse, The land of Shinar became the center for realizing what has been the persistent humanistic dream of one world, one common set of social values, and one language. And this was the problem with the Tower of Babel, and really, again, the same problem from Genesis 3, which I mentioned earlier. It's our humanistic striving to be like gods, our own gods, and it flies in the face of Yahweh as the one and only God. And Nebuchadnezzar uses this same flawed, self-centered, egocentric viewpoint as a tool in his own empire. It's repeatedly an issue during his reign, despite interpreted dreams that point out that error to him. And this statue that he's had built has surprisingly been adapted from the dream that Daniel interpreted for him in chapter 2, verse 31 and 33. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And I say surprisingly, Because after Daniel interpreted this dream for him, Daniel says, if you jump ahead to verse 46, he says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and said, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. But no sooner has he said these words, and he's appointed Daniel and his three friends to positions of power, Now he's constructed this golden image as a sign for the world to see and recognize and worship 
his worldwide dominion. He's attempting what the builders of the Tower of Babel were attempting, to make a name for himself. Again, Nebuchadnezzar is requiring much more than admiration of his new statue. He's requiring the swearing of allegiance that is akin to worship. And there's no room for disagreement or personal opinion on it. This cannot go unchallenged. There are some interesting parallels between Nebuchadnezzar's language concerning punishment and then the language that Jesus uses in Matthew 13, 42, and 50. So in Daniel 3, 6, Nebuchadnezzar says, And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And then in Matthew 13, in verse 42... Jesus says, we find it, and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And again, in verse 50, he says, and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in the book of Matthew, Jesus inverts the narrative in that those who do bow down to idols will be thrown into the fiery furnace. Those who cause all sin and are lawbreakers, from verse 42. Or separating the evil from the righteous, he says in verse 50. It shouldn't come as a complete surprise, based on what we know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from Daniel 1, that they are not going to bow down to this idol. As Hebrew youth, they had learned to recite the Shema. It reads from Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. But they had not only learned to recite it, but clearly they had made it the center of their lives. This was how their genuine faith was lived out, first shown in the refusal of unclean food and now shown in their refusal to bow to an idol. And this genuine faith is reiterated by the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Acts 20, verse 24. Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to lay down their lives for Yahweh. So upon hearing this from some jealous officials, Nebuchadnezzar is furious and summons them. In fact, he even gives them the opportunity to make it right and essentially try to save face and their lives. And just as Daniel before them had been courteous in his request to follow his convictions, so these three verbally acknowledge Nebuchadnezzar as king while committing their ultimate allegiance to the king of kings alone. And they rejected the temptation to be arrogant in their nonconformity. Nebuchadnezzar has declared to them in verse 15 that there is no God that will deliver them out of his hands. He sees his own power above all others, both on earth and heaven. 
D.S. Russell comments on verse 15 saying, Here we see a picture of what the Old Testament would consider to be the ultimate sin. Rulers or nations setting themselves up in place of God, claiming that sovereignty that belongs to Yahweh alone, ousting him from his rightful place of authority. And so in a display of rage and power, Nebuchadnezzar has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bound and thrown into the fiery furnace, having it heated seven times hotter than usual. And verse 22 says that because he was so urgent in his request and because of the extreme heat of the furnace, the guards who threw them in perish. And no sooner had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego been thrown in, does Nebuchadnezzar stand up astounded that he's seeing not three men untouched by the flame, but four. He says in verse 25, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. There are some that believe that this fourth person was the pre-incarnate Christ. Whereas commonly it's believed that that fourth person would have been an angel or an angel of God's presence. Either way, there is no doubt that Yahweh has spared them from what should have been an inevitable and immediate death. Yahweh is determined to show his control, his sovereignty, his care over the narrative as creator of heaven and earth. And Nebuchadnezzar immediately recognizes that their God has saved them and calls them by name to come out of the fire. The text tells us that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of the men, and they they didn't even smell like fire. This miracle is enough to convince Nebuchadnezzar that their God was indeed great. He blesses Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and praises Yahweh, having recognized that it is his power that has preserved them. And on top of that, he decrees that they can worship Yahweh freely, and anyone who speaks against their worship will be put to ruin. So really, in an amazing turn, where the chapter begins with Nebuchadnezzar intending to unite his kingdom, really under one religion— It ends with him acknowledging Yahweh and his sovereignty and then permitting his worship. So having walked through this text, let's see what we can take away from it. And I want to do it in three kind of questions. First, what does this text tell us about God? First, Yahweh is the only God above all gods. Like the Shema says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Secondly, those circumstances may seem to state otherwise. God is in control. So not unlike Abraham or Joseph, Esther, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced circumstances that seemed to dictate that God wasn't in control. But they held fast to God's promise, and he was faithful, and he used them mightily, and he showed himself to be faithful. God is in control. Thirdly, God is bringing restoration. So just like the text we've read today, 
Yahweh will be seen as the one true God, the God of all gods. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So in our story, Israel is in exile, with their God seemingly discredited, but Yahweh was still faithful to his promise and preserved the faithful in a show of power and superiority. So what does this text tell us about Jesus? First, he is with us in our suffering. D.S. Russell says, Just as the mysterious figure remains in the center of the fire, so God continues to be identified with the sufferings of his people. And not only is he with us in our suffering, but Jesus knows our suffering. Isaiah 53, verse 3 and 4 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows our suffering and is with us. And so finally, what does the text tell us about being followers of God, followers of Yahweh through Christ? First, we are vulnerable to wanting to control our narrative. How often do we deal with sin in our own life, trying to control the things around us to our own benefit? Sometimes that may be lying or cheating our way through situations. But also, do we aim to look successful or look like a self-made person and make that our identity in hopes that others might notice? Instead, we need to submit to Yahweh's plan. And, and by the Holy Spirit, we can discern where things may be a problem for us. Since the ascension, we have the Holy Spirit. We've been given the Holy Spirit. And because of that, we can pray to grow in obedient faith. The writer in Hebrews says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire. And going back to Isaiah in chapter 43, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. 
The time will come when the world finally recognizes Yahweh for what he is, the most high God. And I think it's important to note Yahweh's rule is one of care and compassion, meeting the least of these where they are at, as we see in the incarnation in Jesus' ministry. In the time while we wait, we aren't waiting passively, but actively participating, joining with God in bringing the kingdom. Now, we don't know what the timing will be, which rings true to what we've read. And the circumstances may be overwhelming. That sounds familiar. But Yahweh is in control and faithful to his people and his promise to Abraham. And may the Holy Spirit give us faith, obedient faith, as we actively wait. And so as we come to pray, I'd like to close with a prayer from Paul Gerhardt. And I found it referenced in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Letters and Papers from Prison. And it was pertinent even as Bonhoeffer sat in prison in Nazi Germany, where he would eventually be executed. Early on in his time in captivity, he was sure he would get out. He was from a fairly wealthy family. He was well known. But as time wore on, it became more likely that he would lose his life. So Bonhoeffer would eventually face his own death, and he would do so with the same faithful obedience and faith that we see with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even facing death, Bonhoeffer, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they would stand committed to Yahweh, saying, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us out of your hand. But if not, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your providence and commitment to the promise you gave Abraham. Thank you that even before that promise, you were working to redeem and restore your people to again return to your eternal presence. Thank you that through the Holy Spirit you are with us in this time of waiting and in our suffering. Give us faith as we wait, and may we be committed to you despite the circumstances around us. I trust in your grace and commit my life wholly into your hands. Do with me according to your will and as is best for me. Whether I live or die, I am with you and you, my God, are with me. Lord, I wait for your salvation and for your kingdom. Amen. So as we go from here, go with these words of benediction from 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ he who calls you is faithful he will surely do it Amen go in peace